Hello and welcome. My name is Sophia Besch and you're listening to the CER podcast. Welcome to this CER podcast. My name is Simon Tufford. I'm delighted to have Alexander Stubb at the CER today to discuss the implications of Brexit and hopefully some of the broader challenges facing the EU. Welcome. Thank you. What lessons do you think the rest of the EU should draw from Britain's Brexit vote? Is the UK a special case or could what has happened in the UK be a precursor of things to come elsewhere in the EU? Well, two answers to that. One is that, yes, the UK uh, is a special case. It's always had a rather complicated relationship with the European Union. It's been a bit of a reluctant bride. On top of that, it's always been a big player. Second one is uh, lessons to be learned. I think you have to take uh, anti-Europeans, Eurosceptics, populists, nationalists and all the movements that we're seeing around Europe right now seriously because otherwise you're going to end up with more similar situations. The difference, of course, being is that a lot of the Euroscepticism that we see right now comes from Eastern Europe, from the Visegrad countries, mm. and it's not in their vested interest to leave the European Union. And by this, I'm not saying that it's in the vested interest of the UK to leave the European Union either, but I think the alternative cost for these Eastern Europeans is too big. Mm. In some respects, the EU's four freedoms um, are an aspiration rather than a reality. There are effectively controls on, uh, on the free movement of capital because of ownership structures and on labour because of professional uh, controls and a refusal to acknowledge qualifications gained in other member states. Is the EU being a bit hypocritical about insisting on all four freedoms coming together? Wouldn't some kind of compromise make sense? I mean, if Britain needs just to place some controls on the free movement of unskilled labour and the single market is to a significant extent, aspirational anyway, wouldn't it make sense to compromise? Well, the answer to that is yes and no. And the reason I say yes is that you have to go back in history. Number one, uh, the four freedoms are basically holy. I mean, that is the foundation on which I think the whole European Union, especially single market, and our success has been based. And we never wanted to separate you know, the free movement of capital from goods, from services, from, from people. The second one is that I think we're being hypocritical in the sense that the UK was the only country to allow for true free movement in 2004 when we had the big bang enlargement. Remember that France and Germany at the time um, went for uh, transition periods on free movement. And as a consequence, you had a big flow of Eastern and Central Europeans, uh, not least here in London, but uh, everywhere as well. Uh, also, if you want to look at history, I think retrospectively, had we given the UK an emergency break on immigration or whatever you want to call it, perhaps Brexit would not have taken place. Now, no use crying over spilt milk. We have to try to figure out a, a way of, of how to deal with this. And uh, at the end of the day, it depends on what Britain actually wants. So I went to Prime Minister's question hour a couple of days ago, and clearly very difficult to understand or suss out what uh, the UK wants to do with the internal market. Um, it seems to be the political message from almost everywhere. It's, we need to find a solution on immigration, otherwise we're not going to get it. Well, what is the solution? Are you talking about extra European immigration? Are you talking about labor-based? Are you talking about low-skill, high-skill? I mean, how much single market access do you think the UK will or should be asked to concede in return for placing some controls on the free movement of unskilled labour? Because this is what it's going to come down to. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, first of all, I don't think that these negotiations at the end of the day uh, are a zero-sum game. And to sum up the whole issue is I think it should be taken in three phases. 
Phase number one is for the UK to try to figure out what it actually wants. And we are not there yet. We might be there around Christmas. We might be there in January, but not there yet. I mean, Brexit means Brexit, but no one, to be quite honest, really knows what Brexit means. Um, second phase uh, is uh, the initiation of Article 50. Mm, and most likely that will take place sometime uh, next year. What exact time? Uh, I don't know, but that will begin a set of very complicated legal negotiations which are supposed to last only two years, but I actually think that they will last much more because the issues are so plenty and complicated. And then the third phase is to try to define what kind of relationship the UK wants with the EU. And here's where we come to your question. I still think that we might have a possibility to strike a deal, say, within five years, uh, which could be called an a la carte deal, a special relationship between the UK and the EU. And to be quite honest, I don't think that will be very far away from uh, real membership. In other words, number one, access to the internal market, including some kind of a deal on immigration. Number two, uh, customs union. There's no point for the UK to leave the customs union, I think. Could be partial. Number three, justice and home affairs. You know, Theresa May is a prime minister who's been the Secretary of the Interior, uh, so she's quite attached to that, and you can't fight fight terrorism, for instance, you know, without common ground. Number four, uh, common foreign security policy and defense policy. The UK needs the EU, but the EU probably needs uh, the UK uh, even more. And then number five, uh, some kind of a deal on financial services. Now, this all sounds nice, five points and the rest of it. The truth is, however, that as a, as a consequence of this, the UK will not be involved intimately in the decision making. It will still have to pay money for it. Um, and on top of that, it won't participate in any of the other core policies, energy, climate change, etc., that the EU has. This is what we'll be looking at. Extremely complicated, but mm -hmm. doable. Hey, Brexit has happened at a time of a myriad of challenges across Europe. I mean, everyone's talking about Brexit at the moment, but uh, clearly the underlying problems we're seeing have not gone away. I mean, if we look at the economic situation after years of very, very accommodating monetary policies, a lot of reforms of labour markets mm -hmm. across the Eurozone in particular, uh, the economic recovery remains halting and weak. Now, what is missing? What are we not doing? The IMF and other argue that labour market reforms only work really against the backdrop of monetary stimulus and fiscal stimulus. They also argue that structural reforms need to focus more on opening up more sectors to competition mm. and rather less on labour markets. Um, are their criticisms fair? Well, it's a chicken-egg question. You know, it's a question about uh, austerity or stimulation, how you involve monetary policy in your macroeconomic decisions. It's a question of what kind of structural reform you've done. It's impossible to give a sort of a definitive answer on that. I'll just take a couple of examples from up the Scandies. Uh, the Danes and the Swedes have done far-reaching labor market reform, flex security mm. in, in Denmark, um, and, and then a much more liberal labor market in, in Sweden. Finland didn't do that, but we're in process of trying to uh, do that. Um, we've been left behind. Uh, on top of that, uh, we are, in a positive sense, constrained also by the euro, so it gives us a little mm. bit less um, of a leeway. Um, the IMF and perhaps to a certain extent the ECB is starting to talk a little bit about, you know, softer policies, if you will, more stimulus, uh, if you will. 
as a former finance minister, I still don't have the answer what the right mm. thing is. I think that the whole economy is not going to be so much dependent on um, factors, traditional driving factors like budgetary stimulus or or fully blown labor market reform. It's going to be more about technology, mm. whether we have an edge on technology, and that's what's going to deci decide everything. I think the technology question is a fascinating one. It's possible that the slowdown in the the rate of growth we've seen in Western mm. Europe and the US in recent years is permanent, not yeah, least in yeah, Europe's case because definitely. of demography yeah, yeah. and the slowing pace of, of technological change. If so, what do you think the political implications mm. of that are going to be? Well, first, it's a realization um, that you can't have your cake and eat it too, and a realization that all of us who have benefited immensely from globalization and economic growth and the fact that we've been able to build our whole welfare state on it. Uh, perhaps is, is coming to a slowdown and we have to accept that and live with it. My generation is used to just getting more and more and more and more and that is probably going to come to an end at least if we look at the growth figures for the upcoming years. At the same time I'm not sure that we're actually measuring growth in the correct way. I'll just give you one example. You and I probably have a smartphone uh, in our pockets. When I lived in the 1990s uh, I had to buy a stereo, I had to buy an amplifier, I had to buy a CD player, I had to buy uh, 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 headphones, uh, I had to buy speakers, uh, I had to buy computers, I had to buy printers, I had to buy music, uh, and the rest of it. And now I have it all on my phone. Uh, you know, how do you measure that cost at the end of the day? Because it's made our life easier, as a matter of fact, it's made our life cheaper. But we basically just have to get used to it and we have to be able to communicate it as well and say that, listen, you know, we're probably not going to be um, progressively as rich as, as, as we used to. That it's, things have simply slowed down. Mm -hmm. But try to communicate that as a politician. I wish you good luck. <laughs> Absolutely. And also, if it has happened, mm -hmm. if, if the rate of growth does slow permanently, mm -hmm. what does that mean in terms of redistribution? Because it grows weaker and we're already yeah. seeing a lot of popular resentment at, at the... Uh, at the fact that growth is accruing mm. or the benefits of that yeah. growth are accruing to those mm. at the top end of the income scale, does that mean that governments are going to have to rethink yeah, their definitely. policies? Yeah, and, and they do and, and you have to do it constantly all the time because, uh, you know, again, as ex-finance minister, it's kind of a simple accounting, crude accounting exercise. You have to see how much uh, you get in and then you start figuring out how much you can put out. Uh, and there are basically two ways of dealing with it. If you're not getting enough in, you need to tax more. Uh, if you're not uh, getting enough in, you need to cut uh, services. Uh, and it's not a nice thing to do, obviously, because people are used to a certain level. But yeah, governments will have to think about it. But I think governments need to be smarter. They need to use technology as much as they possibly can, uh, also with the redistribution. Hi, Sander Thank you very much for coming in and answering so many questions. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. You can find more on our website, cer.org.uk, or follow us on Twitter at CER underscore London.